Hello, this is Daniel Mounter from the podcast Englishman in Montreal. This is episode number nine of season four, although technically it marks the start of a parallel running series of episodes. And I've decided to mix them within the season with my journalistic entries. Uh, this one may extend quite a lot longer than my normal podcasts, and it's also being recorded relatively unscripted. I want to see how much I can expand just using my jottings and notes and to see what the final result will be like. So please excuse if this is uh, experimental in nature. And please excuse also if it uh, lacks coherence from my regular episodes. I do intend to rewrite it and rescript it at a later date, so there may be another episode with very similar content. But I wanted to get some of my thoughts down, especially related to a book that I've been reading, which is titled uh, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It's um, quite a dry book and quite a challenge, in fact, because the author introduces a lot of new terms. There's quite a lot of um, terms which he coins himself or which he invests the whole of the book in. And without, without going into some of those terms and using the phrases he uses, it's quite difficult to explain the, uh, the concept. And this episode is being produced kind of as a reaction to my typical rather superficial podcasts which come out on a more regular basis. Now the main reason I found the book Thinking Fast and Slow to be fascinating is it does go quite a lot further than my basic philosophy classes in explaining cognitive biases, why we think the way we think and why we think uh, perhaps in a faulty or flawed way it's impossible to summarize this book into one concise phrase, but the main concept seems to be the author boils down the concept to there being two types of thinking, two types of mind, and two systems in our train of thought. There's the rapid um, and often inaccurate often illogical, emotive, and very rapid thinking part of the brain, which he calls System 1. This is a system which... It's almost like uh, artificial intelligence in that it compares a new situation or a, a new concept with pre-existing or instinctive ones in the brain, and then comes up rapidly with a decision or a thought related to that concept. And the second system, which he refers to quite simply as System 2, is a very logical, statistics-based and probability-based reasoning system, which sometimes doesn't kick in at all, and if it does, kicks in very slowly and usually retrospectively. So it's, it's something which 
doesn't come as an immediate reaction and it always plays second fiddle to the first system according to the author which it makes a lot of sense um, and for me it's very pertinent in this day and age especially with the current public health situation and the way people are dealing with it but also in life a lot of people are making some very difficult decisions which require quite a rapid response and leave a lot of room for regret in either outcome I've mentioned that before that there is um, it's possible to make decisions where both outcomes are negative but there is a method for weighing up logically and rapidly which one would be the least regretful decision um, so in the book he gives a lot of examples that uh, people make some decisions and choices based purely on their instinct or gut feeling but also related to existing memories existing frameworks in their mind and that can often lead them to make um, huge factual and judgmental errors um, these biases are really present in professional capacities too and unfortunately this system one that the author refers to is often used uh, by experts and professionals in making decisions um, I think the philosophical term is called an availability heuristic um, when a new situation arises our system one makes us adopt a choice based on a less intense question we tend to compare one question to another one um, or to replace even a difficult or a, a difficult conundrum with a less complicated one that we've maybe worked out before and that has maybe sorry maybe succeeded in the past um, it made me examine my own cognitive biases too my own trust in experts and professionals um, and the pandemic has been quite a test an acid test of um, how much we trust the words of professionals experts and governments one thing that's mentioned in the book is the way people can interpret identical statistics differently if they are framed in different ways and this this was something I discovered that professionals do a lot when presenting statistics such as more mortality rates from the virus that's going around and um, whether they present the mortality or the survivor figures the survival rate can influence the way people think and act about the whole thing and I think this this is where the availability heuristic comes in it means people play around in their mind for um, a situation where they've taken a risk and because the outcome was generally considered positive for example maybe uh, maybe somebody thought it was worth the risk to go out drink driving and based on the fact they didn't have an incident or don't remember an incident 
they use that metric to compare to, say, the virus. Uh, well, if I go out without my mask, I'm sure to survive because the percentage of people who are catching this disease is very, very small compared to those who are not or those who are dying from it. So that's using a false statistic and comparing it to another because that's what the, the lazy, sorry, the, the rapid instinctual brain in System 1 thinks. Um, I said I mentioned earlier that I considered my own biases, and one thing um, I've discovered studying philosophy and psychology, it does put me at risk of pigeonholing and labeling everyone and everything except myself. It's hard to admit that all human beings, including myself, have cognitive biases, that I make decisions based on rule of thumb, experience, and my instinctive thinking, rather than hard data and statistical risk. Those kind of facts are rarely pulled to the fore when we have to make a quick decision. So I wanted to relate it to the pandemic um, because it also enabled me to understand how and why people are buying into these illogical and often fallacial theories and falling for the suggestion that there's a deeper plot behind things. According to the book, one very pertinent thing I found was humans love the storytelling element Stories are very quick and easy concept to grasp, so it tends to be a story or an anecdote that the system one pulls up and says, well, this is what happened here. This is what's going to happen if you make this choice. And stories often follow very, very fixed uh, tropes. They have a protagonist who wins in the end or a struggle which turns out with the best consequences. And... Um, Really, to love a story is to be human. So people find there is a romance in the idea that there's a powerful, a powerful agency controlling the way the world is going, that uh, good and evil are in battle, and that this agency is engineering the whole situation, whether it be good or evil. So... This seeking out of romance or of a good story tends to blind people when they already have biases in their thinking about current situations. Um, the mistrust of vaccines, for example, or the belief that government agencies are deliberately manipulating people and statistics to achieve power. And that brings to light that the pandemic has really uh, emphasized the confirmation bias. Even if people don't look for the specific data to prove a hunch or a suggestion they've received about a fake or barely factual situation, when they go into something with an existing bias, it's much easier to find data which on the surface back up the claim or the bias. For instance, if I have a bias that I believe vaccines are not safe, based on number, no matter what, 
maybe even just a, a fear of needles. I then see that a trial of a vaccine had one severe reaction, say in 100,000 people. The first system, the instinctual and credulous side, makes me believe the vaccine is dangerous. Whereas a careful look into the facts reveals the reaction was actually somebody who received a placebo. It was a dose of salt water and thus was nothing to do with the drug specifically. Now, slightly going off at a tangent, like with stories, people get very attached to their biases and their um, instinctive beliefs, which can eventually be mislabeled as common sense. I think like this, or I believe like this, therefore it's common sense, because I'm seeing it from my perspective, and in general, a lot of people believe that their viewpoint is the viewpoint of many, common sense in other words. And another very important bias comes in there, the uh, loss aversion bias. People fear that their beliefs and their biases, to which they might be very attached, might be ripped away, and their lives are going to be less rich, less spontaneous, and less exciting should the cold hard data prove their theories wrong. And that can go to the extent of preparing quite plausible counter-arguments which are used to avoid these beliefs and emotive decisions being voided. I think that's why people who have spent all their lives reading the Bible or another holy book or being in a religion, they don't want to lose or perceive that they're losing this belief in which they've invested all their energy, time, emotion and themselves because to to throw that out would be like throwing the baby out with the bathwater and the quick reaction would be to shut down or to discredit anything which would cast in doubt these beliefs these uh, accumulated traditions and uh, cultures I mean the flip side there is these confirmation biases exist in experts and professionals. Um, for example, a doctor telling somebody about an upcoming surgery is not likely to say 20% of patients don't survive or die from this surgery. They're much more likely to say 80% survivable. So if the patient unfortunately does pass away, the doctor or surgeon is still going to have been 80% correct, not only 20% correct, but the statistics are exactly the same. And this seems to be, according to the book, people in influence and power are unwilling to accept that they may make an error, and they will then massage the statistics to attempt to keep their credibility to stay ahead in their career. I don't know many surgeons who would put their failure rate or statistics showing their failure on their CV or in the public domain because their reputation would be absolutely destroyed. The, um, the way people would think 
is their biases would make them see only the statistics of the failures and rather than rationally think well what is the typical failure rate in an operation like this they would tend to develop the belief that this surgeon is incompetent or dangerous when in fact they might even have a better track record than somebody who has for example a 30% failure rate but the very fact that they've framed it incorrectly by declaring the failure or the loss is enough to destroy their reputation and credibility as a professional so the the loss there is for being averse to losing professional credibility it's uh, it's quite understandable that people would think this way because emotionally and morally we would we desire that the operations would have a hundred percent success rate but it's more comfortable morally and literally to dwell on the statistics of the survival and success rather than the failure statistics are really cold and unforgiving and can be brutal in their nature now in this episode I don't have really time or the attention span in fact to um, discuss what the book said about risk and stock markets except that people are often starting out a business and enterprise without considering a very very constant statistic that 30 30 percent of businesses go on to survive their second year and they continue to pump money into it or into projects in the belief that eventually luck will change when in fact the original statistics that almost two-thirds of businesses are going to fail in their first year are unchanged and it's a it's a constant it goes into a lot of detail in the book also why government projects even and business projects become white elephants because nobody can conceive the loss that would be incurred by abandoning a project even when it's so obviously way off track for instance a project uh, say like the Olympic Stadium where it went quickly drastically over budget rather than shut the whole project down it was followed through with and then it turned into a huge white elephant which was almost impossible to pay off and ended up costing exponentially more than it was predicted to in the beginning whereas if the project had been abandoned they torn it down and constructed something based on a model of something that actually worked or succeeded in the past it's questionable whether the expenses would have reached those those kind of uh, figures so it brings me to what is almost the second half of this podcast and the subject for today was really the cancellation of Christmas I need to preface this by saying I'm not qualified to speak about how people would feel about not being able to have a family Christmas celebration because for the first 28 years of my life I wasn't allowed to celebrate in any shape or form but with the use of empathy and sympathy I'm able to relate to this loss of social connection the loss of the potential to travel and see family and to enjoy real 
meaningful social interaction after a really hard year. The reason for my musing on this topic is pretty simple, actually. Much as I sympathise with those who can't visit their families or enjoy all the trappings of a traditional Christmas, I do feel that examining one's own loss-aversion biases might really help people to better evaluate what they're actually losing and maybe even come to see it as a net gain if we're considering happiness and satisfaction. I'm sceptical around people bemoaning the cancellation of Christmas and the explanation is really simple. Uh, when a lot of people were told that gatherings would be forbidden they took very quickly to social media to comment that the government had ill intentions, uh, that they lacked any sympathy, and that the whole meaning of a Christmas would be lost. They seem to be only considering a perceived loss of individual rights, i.e. the right to socialise together for Christmas. But this doesn't jive for me because in discussing people's Christmas experiences across the board with many people, including those who found the festival was a really significant event in their childhood, what emerged for me was that many... Um, there wasn't actually much net happiness in the season, in the whole Christmas holiday. There's the brief rush and excitement of gifts, the uh, increased food and luxury, the sparkling lights, and a general sense of well-being. But a lot more sentiments surfaced, especially as a, um, as a summary of the whole experience of the season. Um, many negative sentiments came to the fore when I asked people about their overall experience of Christmas. Uh, there was jealousy and disappointment regarding gifts, um, perceived inequalities in family favourites and in peer pressure, especially for parents um, providing things for their children. Uh, there were family arguments that tend to be emphasised or flare up in the presence of seasonal drinking and the general party atmosphere. A lot of medical conditions that might have been underlying or invisible can be precipitated by all the heavy Christmas fare and the change in lifestyle during the holidays. And of course, there are those who generally find the whole round of parties and um, are maybe introverted. The stress for those is enormous. There is uh, a huge pressure for those who have addiction issues to use those as fallback measures, as faulty coping mechanisms. There's those who have um, strong peer pressure but have no financial means to provide what they consider to be a proper Christmas. And then we have, of course, the heavy cultural pressure from marketing, media, the commercial pressure to consume and to gift and to even incur large debts just as part of the season as though it's something that has to be done it's a imperative and um, 
I wonder when people considered or when they expressed the annoyance that Christmas was ca was cancelled or in some cases postponed. I wonder how many of those negative factors entered their consideration and uh, influenced them to say that cancelling Christmas would only mean misery and unhappiness. So many times I've heard adults especially say to me, I wish I didn't have to do all this Christmas stuff. It's so expensive, it's exhausting, it puts me under pressure for X, Y, Z. Uh, the expectation is from society that Christmas is a happy time, so I have to keep my family, my spouse, my kids, my relatives, even my co-workers happy because I'm under this expectation. So I was quite startled by looking how strong the loss aversion bias was that made people clutch only onto what they would lose rather than what they might gain from this very atypical Christmas season. It feels like the uh, System 1 of the book was referred to far more than System 2 because people expressed their immediate dissatisfaction at the loss without drawing on System 2, which would have perhaps shown them that in the broader picture of things, there might be a net gain in happiness and satisfaction. And it's quite understandable. People readily gravitate to the, uh, the, po the positive side of the season, but far more if they feel it's about to be taken away from them. But if it was written up as a balance sheet as though it was a decision which was in the hands of people whether or not to keep Christmas this year, I feel like it would need to be taken account of that all the negative experiences associated with Christmas, the loneliness for those that are single, the peer and family pressure from those who are not, and the financial burdens, the difficulties, the commercial pressure, all of those negative things would also be removed if Christmas was cancelled. And um, even for those who wouldn't normally see family at Christmas, it would be positive in a way that empathy might be a bit easier for those who were not alone at Christmas usually, because they would get to experience the feeling of being isolated with their family or alone even which in the normal case they wouldn't um, with a reduced social contact there's a lot less peer pressure we can very easily curate how we appear in zoom calls or in video chat or phone calls other advantages are going to be things like the incidence of other nasty illnesses not just uh, covid but flu and colds infectious diseases and more serious conditions that might be triggered by Christmas would also be reduced. And for those who are concerned, quite rightly, but uh, maybe a little emotionally, that social cohesion is being reduced, the time spent with the family is actually a potentially good time where the family bonds can be renewed and reinforced. 
And if there are difficulties among families, what better time to work them out than when they are obliged to be all home together, rather than to decide on an intervention and uh, continue procrastinating about it. Now, I'm aware most of my viewers are probably going to find this sounding really cold-hearted, and rightly so. The pandemic is causing a mental health fallout from the shutdown that's both huge and not really measurable in an objective way. Nobody wanted this pandemic to take over so many aspects of daily life, and regardless of beliefs around a bigger system controlling this whole thing, the uh, the pandemic wasn't wanted by anybody. It was not perpetrated by any state, but certain states have made quite clear that they want to exploit the fear around it by treating it as a plot, and they are they're utilizing people's biases and the biases from the first system, the instinctual and emotional response to get their message across and push an agenda. Um, but to go back to my point that it sounds very cold-hearted to take the philosophical attitude to it, there are people who tell me that they live for Christmas. All of the the routine around the celebration, the different stages, the entertaining, the company, the special biscuits and uh, everything else associated with it and the company. And I'd understand those people saying why they would feel really disappointed if they were told that the majority of these pre-Christmas activities were now irrelevant. There's very little point in making huge volumes of Christmas cookies if people who would formerly be gifted them, for example, would mistrust them because of the COVID. But one important lesson I got from the book is that almost anything, including happiness, is scalable. It can be it can be proportional. If we get pleasure from making a luxurious meal for twenty people, what logic is saying that the pleasure wouldn't be equal for preparing a meal for three people? Instead of a social activity that you would have formerly have done for the community, maybe taking a step of not doing something would equally benefit the community, such as not um, going out for a frivolous reason or an unnecessary reason could help to reduce the spread of a deadly disease. That is, by not doing something, we can confer a benefit on people. I'm going to come back to this in another podcast, because the concept of happiness, satisfaction and pain, and similar feelings, being scalable, is quite a large topic in itself. Um, the book showed some interesting research around the experience of pain, and how intensity and duration are not linked. But the take-home point from that, 
and it's um it's definitely a bias which um afflicts us when we consider what makes us happy often we can launch ourselves into a self-fulfilling prophecy by just focusing on what we stand to lose rather than adapting and turning the perceived loss into what will be a net gain and there's a lot to be said for pivoting i.e. adjusting and regrouping that's why although I've got sympathy for people who lose anything or feel they will lose something I find it really hard to maintain my sympathy when the focus is so much on the perceived loss all all, uh, sight is lost of what the potential gain would be I know all too well what it is to set my heart on something and I believe it's a very laudable thing to have goals and targets but having read and reflected on this book and several others in fact um, I would have to say that uh, setting goals and expectations has to be done really objectively and with the second system of the book engaged as much as possible otherwise um, the harsh reality of luck and probability and the coldness of statistics could wreak havoc with my happiness that in itself is a reason why it's a very useful exercise to use both systems to test against my feelings and beliefs and especially against my biases to examine whether I'm employing the first system in making all my decisions or most of my decisions or if there could be a more purely statistical approach to some things that would enable me to to calculate a risk more objectively and this podcast I'm very conscious has been a little all over the place it um, it covers many topics so I will thank you if you've managed to listen this far in it I'm gonna revisit some of the topics um, but I'd be also grateful for any of your suggestions as to what to incorporate in the next podcast and also how to be more concise about it. I will certainly be revisiting this subject if it proves interesting to people but I would greatly value any of your feedback. So on a cold and rather frosty morning with freezing rain threatened this has been Daniel Mounter from the podcast Englishman in Montreal.